you know, you have doctors and nurses and medical personnel lining the hall and all because they're trying to encourage me because I'm leaving ICU. But the reason why I was so emotional and the reason why Kelly and I want to tell this story is that more than anything, it was a celebration of these men and women fighting for my life. Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week on the show, I welcome a good friend of mine whose near-death battle with COVID-19 earlier this year is a story that will help you see this pandemic up close. Stuart Hall and his wife Kelly were like many of us in March, Confused and wondering what the future held as the coronavirus spread across the world and our country shut down. The whole story is one of relentless faith and a growing courage as they walked through an unimaginably dark valley, but came out on the other side thanks to a heroic team of doctors and nurses and the love and prayers of their church community. Their personal story matters deeply for the pandemic politics on our country's road to recovery and to health. Stuart Hall is a lifelong student minister. He serves as director of student leadership and leadership networking for Orange of the Rethink Group and also leads Influencer, an organization who he'll tell you more about. And their mission is to fuel the next generation of leaders worth following. Stuart speaks to thousands of junior high, high school and college students, as well as parents and student pastors every year through camps and events. And we met at one of those camps, Big Stuff Camps in Panama City Beach, Florida, where I attended as a student and then interned two summers while I was in college. Kelly Hall is founder and director of the Echo Group, a full-service management group in itinerant communicators. Borrowing from the famous line from the cinematic epic Gladiator, the Echo Group believes that what we do, what we say, how we say it, and how we live and love echoes in eternity. Stuart and Kelly Hall reside north of Atlanta and are the parents of three young adult children. Their son, Grant, who recently returned from overseas with the Peace Corps, is a 2017 Duke University graduate and football letterman. Their daughter, Chandler, is a senior basketball player at Rollins College, and daughter, Cameron, a freshman soccer player at the University of Florida. As always, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, consider signing up for our weekly policy newsletter to keep up with the work with Russell Moore, Travis, Chelsea, Stephen, and myself, our whole ERLC team in Washington, D.C. The newsletter is always focused on a big issue that our advocacy is engaged on, and the past couple of newsletters have been focused on the race issues happening in America right now as the country is dealing with centuries of injustice and brutality. And working through all of those issues, we, we cover all of that in our policy newsletters these past couple of weeks. Uh, so if you're interested in the big cultural issues of the day and the conversations happening in Washington, D.C., go to ERLC.com policy to sign up. I'm joined now by Kelly and Stuart Hall. Thanks for being here, y'all. Jeff, thanks for having us. We're honored. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, um, let me start off by saying that this conversation is uh, one that 
we weren't necessarily guaranteed to have a couple months ago. And um, I was excited to be able to have this conversation, um, not just so that you can share your story of God's grace in your life and the courageous work of your doctors and nurses and the whole team around you. And Kelly, your courageous story walking through just an absolute horrific experience and the way that your church and in particular your family with your kids rallied around you. I was, I'm was i excited to share that story with folks, but I'm also just excited uh, to see you. Stuart is uh, a good friend of mine. I interned at a camp that he continues to preach at for many years called Big Stuff uh, when I was a college intern. So Stuart, you and I, you and I go back... Oh, gosh, more than a decade now, which is a little bit yeah. unsettling. We to are think old about friends. How that, uh, that summer was more, you know, more than a decade ago, interned there at the camp in Panama City Beach, Florida in 2009, uh, in 2010. Um, well, let's tell folks a little bit, uh, a little bit more about, about the Hall family before we jump into uh, your story and, and experience uh, with COVID-19. So, Stuart, tell us a, a bit more about your uh about your ministry? Well, uh, Kelly and I both are 30 plus year youth ministry veterans. We've been, uh, since I, right before I graduated from college, been working uh, with teenagers. I have no desire whatsoever to do anything else, but I love the next generation. It's what we're passionate about. I was a local church youth pastor for 13 years and then entered nonprofit world working for an international youth ministry organization, created our own nonprofit. And then in 2008, went to work for uh, Orange, that's a for-profit business uh, influencer. Um, our mission is to fuel the next generation of leaders worth following. We don't think that uh, Generation Z is the church of tomorrow. We think it's the church of today. Um, and just passionate about that. So that's what we pour all our life's blood into. Um, I'm very, very fortunate that Kelly's my teammate in that and just as much a part in, of what we do around the country. So really, really grateful for what it is that we get to do. I love that. And one of the reasons that uh, I think that's an important part of your story battling this virus, because as I was reaching out to friends, family, um, and particularly here at the ERLC, our work Slack channel, uh, we have a prayer channel, and I was sharing when you went into the hospital that I had a friend and that he was battling this disease. And Kelly, I would share screenshots of your post uh, as, as updates for people to be praying about here at ERLC. Uh, and it was neat. There were a couple different folks from around the country because our staff are, are scattered all, all throughout the United States. And there are multiple different people like, wait, what is his name? Stuart what? And I would tell him Stuart Hall. And they go, oh, okay, we've been, you know, and there were these connections where you had spoken at a camp or at somebody's church. And so they they had seen somebody else share your story on Facebook. And I know a little bit about what that's like being a pastor's kid myself. And, you know, those in ministry, you don't always realize how many lives you're touching and God is using you to influence until, until something like this happens and you just see thousands of people on their knees praying for you to come through because you've impacted and, and touched their lives. And I just love that, and that that was a um, that was a silver lining of your story. Just to see the, you know, I, I know that you love to talk about influence, and so I hope that you felt your influence. And Kelly, same to you. The the ministry that that y'all are a part of. Well, I, there's no question that the only reason I'm speaking to you today is because of the 
um, we can't even count them all, the countless people who prayed and loved me home. Yeah. But we are eternally indebted to those people that people that we don't even know. I was on a call yesterday and uh, a youth leader was telling me that, you know, he thinks that every youth pastor in California was praying for me. Um, so it, it just blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back to where this all started. And by this, I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the, the pandemic in in the U.S. So even before before your brush with it, I think March 11th is probably going to be the date that sticks out with a lot of folks when this thing really became when the when the attention of the nation fixated on it. So if you'll remember, March 11th is when the NBA shut down their season. That's when we had an Oval Office address. That's when Americans abroad started scrambling to try to get back home. And then late that night, it's when we found out that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson were in a hospital in Australia with COVID-19. And it was kind of that first celebrity that people feel like they know, even though they don't know Tom Hanks. But it was like, oh, this is all of a sudden real now because Tom Hanks has this virus. What was that like for y'all? You had a one of your children had just come back from overseas. What was that experience like? What did you first think when coronavirus pandemic all began? March 11th, we were at dinner. Um, I was just going to add with actually our pastor and his wife, when our daughters start texting us and calling us and our older daughter said, hey, by the way, school is being shut down. You got to come move me out. And we're like, what? I mean, and it kind of just escalated from there. Our youngest daughter was waiting to hear from her coaches to find out when she was going to get kicked out of school and that their season, she was in a spring season and when it was going to get, if it was going to get shut down or not. So it was, that's what happened on Wednesday, March 11th. Okay. On Thursday, we started trying to make decisions about how we were going to rearrange life to get everybody out of school and to get moved. And I, I would imagine too, just with your with your business and, and your ministry involving a lot of travel and speaking engagements, that all started drying up and changing. Yes, both of us within the next month, like everything was it was crazy. Our entire summer was canceled pretty much for all of my communicators. Let's jump into, you know, Stuart, you eventually would contract the virus. When when was that? When did your symptoms begin? Well, Kelly and I went on a five-mile walk on March 25th. That afternoon and evening, I started just feeling a little uneasy and different and weird. Um, I'm a relatively pretty healthy guy. By March the 29th, it had had progressed to the degree that we felt like I needed to go to the ER. We went to the emergency room. Of course, hospitals at this time are in full pandemic effect. We pull up to the emergency room entrance. There's tent set up and everybody is in their protective garb. I shared with them what I felt like was going on. Kelly couldn't go in with me. Uh, they took me inside. They didn't have enough tests at the time to test me. And I really didn't have all the symptoms they felt like I needed to have to uh, admit me. They did a chest x-ray. We're 97% sure it was the actual verbiage they used with me. They were 97% sure I probably had the virus. but they sent me home to self-quarantine. So we came home. I went upstairs and did not leave my bedroom. Fast forward, I continually, progressively got worse. My fever was spiking. 
I would stay in the 104 range. Kelly could get it down with Tylenol every once in a while to 101. I think it's as low as it got. And eventually we were put in touch with an infectious disease doctor. He prescribed me hydroxychloroquine. I took it. And for 72 hours, I did not sleep, uh, could not go to sleep. My heart was racing uh, until the day of and the night of April the 6th. I just was not feeling well at all. And Kelly kept insisting, let's go to the hospital, let's go to the hospital. And we both were kind of trying to put it off because we knew that going to the hospital will probably mean being intubated, and we didn't want that. We also knew because of our previous visit that it would mean that we were going to be separated, and I certainly didn't want that. But at 1 o'clock in the morning on the next morning at, on April 7th, Kelly and our, and our son Grant rushed me to the ER and uh, sure enough, I was having a heart attack or had a heart attack on the way. We're not really sure which. And uh, I'll let Kelly fill in all the details because, to be honest with you, Jeff, the last thing I remember is watching Creed in my bedroom. And then the next thing I remember is 20-something days later coming out of a medically induced coma in ICU. My goodness. So, Kelly, from from your perspective – Walk us through once you once you and Grant get Stuart to the hospital. What happened? They allowed me to go in at this time, just just to the ER, and so I went in into obviously a very closed and secure room. They were doing EKGs. They were trying to get his oxygen level up, trying to find out what his oxygen was, and they were very panicky at this point. The ER was finally the doctor came in and said was asking questions and was like, we're going to have to intubate him. And I said, I figured. And he said, you need to say your goodbyes. So I, you know, gave Stuart a kiss and told him I loved him. And the last thing he told me was, you might have just saved my life. And I left the room and went to a, um, a waiting room. And by this point, my other two children were on their way to the hospital and were sitting in the parking lot with our son. And the next person that came to see me was a, a cardiologist. And I, at that point, had no idea he had had a heart attack. And he comes in and says, your husband's had a heart attack or is having a heart attack right now. And we want your permission to go in to see what's going on and um, possibly put a stent in if it's necessary. And I'm like, of course, you have it, go. And so they went in and I had was sat there by myself in that waiting room for probably two and a half hours waiting to hear from from them. And when he came back, he was very grim and was very sorrowful and was almost like I felt as if he really wanted to cry with me um, and maybe give me a hug. But obviously you can't do that with everything that's going on. But I put my children on the phone so they could hear his report that he said that his main artery was 100% blocked. And they put a stent in in the main artery and put a heart pump on his heart to try to get. So not only did he have a heart attack, but he was also having congestive heart failure because of all the fluid that was going on in his body because of the virus. So my son said, what are his chances of survival? And he said, if you just had a heart attack, I'd give you 50% chance of survival at this point. He said the fact that he has COVID and has, is now on a ventilator. He said, it just doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. And he said that at that point, he told us, he said, I'm a man of faith. 
Um, and he said, now's the time to pray. And he said, that's, we're doing everything we can, but that's all I can tell you. He told me the nurse would probably bring me up to ICU. I didn't know how far I could get with being with them. I had a feeling I was probably going to get kicked out pretty soon. So finally, they took me up to ICU. I had to fill out some papers. And she told me, all right, here's where you leave. And so I go down an elevator and tell my kids where I'm coming out. And that was it. So we just got in the car. And my middle daughter said, I mean, we just all hugged and cried. And then my middle daughter said, can we pray? We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Every day we hear countless messages telling us how to think about the world around us as the culture pulls us in different directions. It's easy to get overwhelmed and disengage completely or even begin to be more influenced by the world than the Word of God. But how should we respond to everyday events and issues in a God-honoring way? A new book from The Good Book Company titled Beautifully Distinct, Conversations with Friends on Faith, Life, and Culture. Edited by Trillian Newbell brings together 15 women, including ERLC and Capital Conversations' own Chelsea Patterson Soblick, to discuss films, books, and media. The book also outlines biblical principles for approaching difficult topics like body image and racism, and encourages its readers to shape our lives around Christ. Beautifully Distinct is now available at your favorite bookstore or thegoodbook.com. You can find out more in the link in our show notes. That's beautifully distinct at thegoodbook.com. So Kelly, you put out the call to prayer and you walked us through what it was like having to leave your husband in the ICU, which I honestly can't imagine what that's like to leave your spouse in there and and know that you can't be by their bedside. I, I just, I, I can't imagine what you went through, Kelly. But what was it also like for your kids to, you know, for for the four of y'all to sort of band together in the house while, while knowing that, because normally in a situation like this, you're going to have friends and family coming over to the house and seeing you. What did community look like to be in, to be an encouragement and to rally around you during that time? The questions you ask are twofold. First, you said how how was it basically going home with you and your family? That's totally different than a community rallying around you because community can't be near you at that moment. Um, my parents were begging for me to, you know, let me let us come because we don't live near family. Let us come. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not getting near us because if we're sick or if we're carrying it, that's the last thing I want you to have. I mean, that would, you know, I'd feel hugely guilty if I gave it to anyone else, if any of us were carrying it. But when you come home from something like that, what I don't think people understand is um, the devastation and the emotional every single day, every, like you live off of phone calls and that's all you had was a connection. Like they gave you, when I left the hospital, they gave me an ICU number and a nurse's name he had that day. And it was like, all right, well, here's your connection. And that nurse was every nurse from, you know, seven o'clock in the morning to seven o'clock at night, you had a new rotation. They were our connection to him. And that was the only, that was the only thing you had to find out what was actually going on with your loved one. 
What did those phone calls look like? Oh, you never knew. I mean, your heart or your stomach dropped every single time you picked up the phone to call because you didn't know if it was going to be positive. You didn't know if it was going to be negative and you got it all. You got every bit of it. And it was (sighs) the emotion and the devastation that goes along with that is, um, was just crazy. It's crazy. You would not wish it upon anyone to have to deal with something like that. We did have a palliative care doctor where they've started. I know they always had them, but they've kind of taken on a new role during, during COVID. And she would be our hands and feet to the rotation of the ICU doctors. So she would make all the rotations with them. And then she would be the one to call us every day, a couple of times a day, usually to kind of give us an update on what direction they were going with. Um, they were going to take, they were going to attack this first because he had so many things going on inside of him that they had to decide which one do they address first. So the night we got there, obviously they addressed the heart attack and the intubation, but then the next day they immediately took off the heart pump. And once he got, his body was settled then they had to start addressing his lungs because his lungs were just full, was total white into his, both of his lungs were. So then they had to start addressing the lungs and they proned him, which means for, I think it was 16 18 hours, hours, 18 hours a day, he was on his stomach and they would rotate his head and arms every hour. And then the remaining hours of the day, he was on his back. But that was just to release some of the fluid off of his lungs to try to create, to try to help create more breath and more air. So that was for like three or four days after the heart attack. That was the first week. So he gradually progressed a little bit and he was stable throughout the whole thing. That was the miraculous thing is he just continually held his stability throughout that process. So So that's that side of it. And then the community side of it, I think our friends and family, they just didn't know what to do. And we didn't know what we needed or wanted from them because you just, you're just like, stay away from us. We're in quarantine. We had picked up groceries that morning, but then people were just, were like, picked up groceries, meaning we had a Walmart pickup because we couldn't even go into a store at that point. But people were dropping off groceries. They were trying to bring meals and, and I was like, leave them at the bottom of the stairs. Don't even come up our stairs. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and, you know, we would wave out a window at people if they dropped something off. But um, we had, the day that it happened, a group of student pastors and just people in ministry that Stuart has been very influential in their lives um, at lunch that day, they did a Zoom prayer. And it was probably about 20 or 30 guys in ministry across the country. So it was things like that. And then they decided because the, you know, that 48 hours afterwards, that 48, 72 hours afterwards was very critical. Um, and so they decided they were going to pray through the night. And so one took from like seven to like seven in the morning, seven at night to seven in the morning. Each one of those guys or girl took an hour And literally for the next 20 something days, they held that hour and I couldn't believe it. I was just amazed at their commitment to that. And um, so many times 
it was what held us up as a family. Kelly, for those of us who were following you on Instagram, there was a blue heart that that you started sharing. Tell us about the blue heart. The blue heart came after a weekend when they could, some of the nurses from the ICU, they started following us on social media and they realized that we were going to the parking lot, (laughs) me and my children. They're like, oh, this is what the traffic jam was here. All of these people that love the halls keep filling our parking lot up. It's just like, what do you do? I mean, you, you know, and we just thought to ourselves, we just want to be close to him. So we didn't know where he was. I knew he was on the fourth floor somewhere. I knew he was in room seven because they had given us that information. But where's room seven? (laughs) And I mean, we just knew it was in the vicinity. So one weekend after this nurse came back to work in the ICU, she let, she let us know. She said, Hey, by the way, I put a heart in the window. I made a heart this weekend and I put it in the window just so you'd know exactly where his room was. And I'm like, the kindness, number one, that she would even consider us while she was on her own time. And then for us was an absolute lifeline. It, uh, she had no idea what she did for us, but for us, it was like, that was him. He was the heart. And it just became such a cool thing to watch our family, but also our friends and family around our community and across the world. Um, just watch them take on this blue heart and it, the meaning changed for them because that was him. That was, that was Stuart for us. So in your uh, weeks in ICU, uh, Stuart, you had ups and downs. You obviously weren't aware of your ups and downs, uh, but Kelly, you were. And as somebody who was watching all of this happen from Washington, DC, it was a pretty amazing moment when we learned that this isn't just positive news, but he's starting to recover. And we're praying that he recovers enough to leave ICU. And that's news that you're hoping for. It's news that you're praying for. But then to actually watch that happen is amazing. So what led to his recovery? What was that like um, as his wife hearing that positive news and and dealing with that hope, but also keep praying because he's still in ICU? Well, I'm not sure you could feel the depravity from social media of actually how it felt in our home of because there was plenty of positive days, but then there was a lot of bad days. It was like, sure. we'd go up and then it would all be, all of a sudden it would be like, oh my gosh, we just hit rock bottom again. And that's what we had just been through. Um, that weekend, they were wanting to extubate him on that Friday and then through the weekend, we kept thinking that, um, like, literally, the palliative doctor sent me a text message and said, I expect Stuart, this was on Friday. She said, I expect Stuart, when I get back on Monday, to not be in ICU. That's what she told me via text message. And so we kept thinking any day he would be extubated. And the ICU doctors kept saying, let's just give him 24 more hours. Let's just give him 24 more hours. Well, on Sunday night... He ended up vomiting in his ventilator. Come Monday, they have upped his sedation again. He is bleeding internally. He is septic on the inside. Um, 
And we found out later I had a dangerous bacterial infection as well. So all, so you go from the doctor saying this to all of a sudden he had six or seven doctors standing around this body going, he's dying. What do we do? What do we do? And, you know, they're having to communicate that to me. So that's what I'm saying. I, it's just like you can't understand the emotional trauma of just going up and down, up and down. So then come Tuesday, they've done um, a uh, kidney doctor comes in and calls me. And he's looking at his body and he calls me and says, I just want you to know your husband's very sick. He's dying. And I'm like, yeah, I know that. Um, and he's just like, I'd like to try something. This is very low risk. It may not work, but, you know, we use it on sickle cell patients and a lot of patients that have very low um, immunities of some sort, you know, that they need help. He said, and I'd really like to try it and see if this would work at all. And he said, I want to do a plasma exchange. And I go, do it. You got my permission. Do it. Anything. I didn't care what it was. Just do something. Um, he started it on that afternoon. And within 24 hours, he was totally different. He was alert. His eyes were open. He was wanting to watch television. Now, he doesn't remember any of this, but this is what we're seeing. Right. They do it again on, fr on Wednesday. They do another exchange on Wednesday. They find out he does have bleeding ulcers, which were created because of the ventilator and the feeding tube. Um, they've cauterized those. They're, they're trying to get a hold of all the other small things that are going on in his body. The virus had created blood clots in his body, which they had to take him off blood thinner because he had bleeding ulcers in his stomach because they were giving, I mean, so it was just like. Just one thing after the a, other, after the yes, other. Yes, it was just, a, yeah. everything was going on. So Wednesday, they gave him another. Thursday, they're like, he's doing so well. We don't need to do another infusion, um, plasma exchange. So next thing we know, Friday, they're extubating him. And I mean, the world is totally changed for him. And so literally, this kidney doctor with this plasma exchange has saved his life. Wow. And when did your family get to go see him? So was that after his uh, leaving the ICU? Um, I, they allowed me to come in for one hour on the Tuesday while he was still in ICU. Um, so he got extubated on Friday. So that following Tuesday, I got to go in and spend an hour with him. They just felt like he was on that brink of he's, he's turned the corner, but he needs to push it to the next, to the next step. And so somehow they got permission for me to come in. Cause they knew that him seeing you might hopefully be could the change. tipping point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what they were hoping. Not might. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be the tipping point. Because you to need to understand, I'm starting to come out of the fog now. And I'm, I was frustrated. I was emotional. I just wanted to go home. I, I mean, I was so out of it. But then the right. more I started understanding and, you know, they would have to strap my arms down because I was just like, I was incredibly frustrated sure so i spent i got to spend an hour with him in icu had to put on the whole ppe guard i mean everything was crazy and just to just to think about those nurses that was very eye-opening to me because thinking what those nurses and doctors have to go through every time they went in one of these patients rooms right 
and they had to degarb. They had to take it all off before they could come out. And then before they could go in to see another one, they had to do the same procedure over again. Um, it was incredibly eye-opening of the, of the sacrifice they've gone through. So that was on Tuesday. He got moved out of ICU on Wednesday. They lined the hallways, the nurses and doctors, our palliative care doctor, she, Dr. Syed, she FaceTimed us. So we got to participate in the whole thing. And there's a video um, of it. And, and I'm going to link to it too. here in the show notes because it is just amazing. I mean, picking up on the on the, on the the boxing movie theme, uh, it was the Rocky. Uh, <laughs> it was the Rocky main theme that played. Uh, and Stuart, you just, uh, you bawled like a baby. I did. That's That seems to be the theme with me these days. Uh, I was, to be very candid with you, and I didn't express this well when I was sitting in the uh, wheelchair, but, you know, you have doctors and nurses and medical personnel lining the hall, and all because they're trying to encourage me because I'm leaving ICU, but the reason why I was so emotional and the reason why Kelly and I want to tell this story is that more than anything, it was a celebration of these men and women fighting for my life. You know, James talks about you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And I am so grateful that people were praying for me and praying in faith that God could heal me, not that he would, because those are two different things. I think a situation like this teaches you really how to pray. But the fact that these men and women, like they risked their life for me, it was a celebration of them more than anything else. And what we've learned now, you know, seven weeks, six weeks removed is just how fortunate I am because my story is not everyone's story. Um, you know, we've heard stories of a nurse being in some COVID patient's room and some other COVID patient in another room flatlining. And Kelly mentioned this, they have to degarb and regarb to go back into a room. And by the time they get there, that patient has passed away. So the thing that beats in our heart is to give the respect due to the medical community who are fighting their tails off for people. That's what I felt sitting in that wheelchair. I'm looking at these people who have risked their life for me. And we would do that. Like we would tell every nurse that would come on stat on like their duty, the seven and seven, every shift change, we would call and ask, what's your name? Kind of like who you are a little bit. And we told them just how grateful we were that they were, loving our husband and dad and taking care of him and that they were risking their, their selves. And we just wanted them to know that we were going to be praying by name for them. And we have on our wall, every single nurse that touched him and cared for him just because we never wanted to take it for granted what they were doing. And the fact that they, that they would risk that to go in and serve our family to take care of him. And um, with that, I think also just put such a deep sense of when people did want to say it was a hoax and did want to say it's a conspiracy theory, we were just like, that's incredibly disrespectful to these people. You have no idea what these people are doing. It, it just blows me away. And both of him, him, Stuart and I felt why did God choose to save him? I mean, today, I think the number is 116,000 people have died from this. And yeah, then, just in our country alone. What, just ours. Yeah, exactly. And why is he living? 
we don't deserve that at all. He's no better. And me and my children felt that the whole time. Like, he's no better than anybody else. I cannot imagine the pain that these people, that just because of what we were going through, and um, to know that their story ended in a different way than ours did. Um, and, you know, and then for people to disrespect the medical community by their verbiage or their actions right. was uh, just so disheartening. It's just. Right. Well, one of the reasons uh, that I'm so thankful y'all were willing to, to come on our show and share your story is because I want people to know that this virus is real. But so is the courage of the doctors and nurses and everybody on the front lines um, who are caring for the vulnerable right now, uh, from those who, you know, might be bringing somebody into the hospital. I mean, the courage, Kelly, that you uh, that you exemplified for all of us who were watching and praying along with you, the courage of your medical professionals, and then, you know, seeing, I know that y'all uh put out the call to provide meals uh for the hospital staff and it and uh that was incredible to see the generosity and the way in which your community there in Buford gave back uh to the hospital staff the virus is real and it is scary and it's and it's going to continue to be with us for a while i, I was telling y'all beforehand a, a neighbor of mine who uh, works in and around the federal government's response to all of this. And and he, he said, you know, early on, people are thinking about this pandemic like it's a blizzard. If we just hunker down for a little while, we'll get through it. He said, this isn't a blizzard, it's a winter. And there are going to be probably more people with y'all's story. And I, I want people to, to know that it's real, but to also take heart in the courage of those standing on the front lines and to know how they can be praying. Um, so it's just all, it's such a good word. And I'm, I'm so grateful that that y'all were willing to come and, and share your story. So Stuart, how are you now? Uh, this week, uh, today is the second day of the seventh week that I've been home. Uh, I had to relearn how to walk in ICU mainly because of the amount of medicine in my body and trying to come out of the fog of a medically induced coma. My brain just could not comprehend putting one foot in front of the other and to consider that, you know, relearning how to walk in ICU. And, you know, last week I ran on a treadmill for five minutes. Uh, wow. Yeah. I, That's amazing. I, I, I'm pretty sure my PT doctor and his team think that I'm prepping for the NBA supplemental draft because they're trying to kill me. I, I lived through COVID and now my PT team is trying to kill me, but it's a good kind of pain. I'm, in a constant state of store, yeah, sore and exhausted. But Stuart, I know so you grateful. think that's funny. I, I just, Kelly doesn't. Um, she doesn't think that joke is, <laughs> she doesn't think that joke is funny. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm back working and yeah, I feel great. The thing that I don't worry about the most is my heart. I haven't even thought about my heart. Uh, I, I think, you know, and our uh, pulmonary doctor, most survivors have permanent lung damage, and we made that visit two weeks ago to a pulmonary doctor. My lungs are almost 100% clear, and I have no permanent damage. So that in and of itself wow. is a miracle. Wow, praise God. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Wow. Um, last question I have, and Stuart, I'd love for you to answer, but then also you, Kelly, because you were walking through this valley as well. How will this experience change your ministry? 
Well, I don't know. I'm not nearly as concerned about my ministry as I am me personally. I I think we make a much ado about ministry when in reality it's about people trying to be the example and person of Jesus to other people. Kelly and I were already wrestling with this and beforehand, and this experience has definitely kind of brought to light the fact that uh, we've made an idol out of certainty. I think a lot of people in American evangelical Christianity worship certainty more than we do the person of Jesus. And the person we're supposed to be worshiping said in this world, you're going to have trouble. And I've never once asked why me on the back end. I have, why am I still alive? But why did this happen to me is not a question that I've asked and I won't. But what it has done is it's rattled me to recognize that what we love is certainty. And instead of placing our faith and trust in the one we're supposed to place our faith and trust in. It's kind of like what C.S. Lewis said about Aslan, that he's not safe, but he's good. And that's who we want to place our faith and trust in. That's who we want to fix our eyes on. That's who it is that we want to follow. And we want to put aside this idea that everything in life is supposed to be a Disney movie with flowers popping up in the valley. And it's just not the way it is. You know, being human means pain and pleasure. And to embrace that, and follow Jesus in it changes you. And to be very honest with you, being out of it in ICU and now almost, you know, six full weeks out of the hospital and hearing story after story after story after story of what Kelly and our children experienced, Kelly has inspired me with the way that she kept her eyes on Jesus instead of certainty. And she hasn't told you this story, but there was a day where she walked out on our front porch watch the sun come up and this will mess you up. She literally had this peace come over and she basically said to God, okay, you can have him. And that's, that's trusting in a way that I don't know, but it's also breaking the idol of certainty because she didn't know what the future meant, but she's going to trust in Jesus. I mean, that's crazy. I think I would agree with Stuart that it, it's not that we think, how is this going to change our ministry? It's how, how has it changed our lives? And I think ministry is just something we do because Jesus is who we are and we live it every day, no matter what, if we're getting paid to do it or not. <laughs> um, but I do think that there was no certainty throughout the whole process. And I could just vouch for that. And I think at the time, me and my children were just surviving um, emotionally in every in every way, and now we're all starting to try to work through the emotions that we felt during that during those that month, as well as knowing we've got to live life to some degree of a new normalcy, but to face those, you know whether it's the first time I went to Target when we finally got cleared out of quarantine and we were negative on our test to go, I cried the entire time I'm walking around Target because I'm just like looking at people going, you don't care? Do you not know what's going on in this world? And they're living life so haphazardly, like like nothing's going on. And, and I feel like that now 
um, especially since the country's kind of reopened, that um, people, they've already forgotten what's gone on. And so working through those moments of doing what, I, doing what we can to protect ourselves and to protect other people, but also to try to find balance emotionally as well as working again, going places. I mean, like we said, our daughter has to go back to school in two weeks. So we're trying to like take steps to make sure she feels okay to be without us. Um, so it's just, it, it's changed everything for us. And as I'm navigating through trying to attach my emotion and to experience it so I can move forward. And each one of my children are doing the same thing as well as myself. But there's also Stuart's side where he's going, I've been given a second lease on life. We can't live in fear. We've got to live life. And we're, we're all going, we agree with you. We totally agree with you. But we've been through hell. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I just laid there. <laughs> right. They right. went through hell. And Jeff, I would also add this, and I know Kelly believes this. I don't think, and I don't, I don't mean to get too theological, and there may be people that disagree with this. I don't think God made this happen to me, but I do think he wants to make it matter. And all of us, our children, Kelly and myself, we want to make sure that we don't waste it, that, that we help God make it matter. And she's right. I mean, fear doesn't keep you from dying. It keeps you from living. But the other side of that with where we are is it is foolish for us to not see the signs of things that are happening and to act so haphazardly. If for no other reason, you can take me out of it because it's personal to us. It's probably not personal to your people listening, but it's so incredibly disrespectful to the medical community, men and women who are fighting their tails off for, to, to save lives. Well, the purpose of this of this podcast is we want to help Christians think of a new way to engage the debates of the public square and the conversations that are happening. And, you know, usually that looks like talking about policies that are up for discussion, Supreme Court cases, you know, politics, stuff that's happening in D.C. And I know this is much more of a personal conversation than we usually have on this podcast. But, you know, Kelly, what, what you were just talking about there, the personal and the political the public debates and the grief that that families are walking through, it is all mixed together in not only in the pandemic, but also with the race issue that our country is wrestling with now. And if we are going to be people of the cross to walk through it all, we, we have to recognize that the debates we have on Facebook, the the news that we consume either on TV or through reading, there's a personal side to every story. And if we're going to be the people of the cross that engage that well with both uh, compassion and conviction, with both justice and mercy and all, all of that that comes with it, then we're going to need to be the people who, who can grapple with the personal effects of the policies that we advocate for. Well, and Jeff, what's interesting in you saying that is I spent all last summer at the camp where we met talking about this reality. We love to say that the opposite of shallow is deep. Reality is the opposite of shallow is personal. 
once you make something personal, it becomes very deep, but it doesn't happen otherwise. And this issue with COVID-19 is deep to us because it's so personal to us. So is the race issue in our country. When you have a table, you know, when your dinner table represents diversity, it becomes deep because it's so personal. And that's what I just hope people hear today, that politics is about people. This is about people. And so it should be personal. And, and if it ever becomes all about policy, we have lost our way in this country. Right. Well, Stuart, Kelly, thank you all so much for sharing your story with us on Capital Conversations. I appreciate it very much. And um, man, again, I'm just, I'm so thankful that we were able to have it. And I, and I feel just as your friend, I, I, I feel so, yeah, undeserved um, that we were able to have this. So thank you all so much. Thank you for having us. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, and thanks also to you for joining us today for this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening. And if you're enjoying these conversations, consider dropping us a five-star rating and a review. This really will help others find our show and learn about important stories like this one. Our hope for this podcast is that the conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. So if you know someone who would enjoy this podcast and, and enjoy particularly hearing about a story of a family who personally dealt with and battled COVID-19 and to hear the heroic efforts and work of the healthcare professionals who are on the front line, consider sending them a link to the show. We would love to welcome them around the Capital Conversations table. Resources from this conversation, as well as to watch that video that we talked about of Stuart leaving the ICU, uh, are available in the show notes and at erlc.com to equip you and your church. 